familiar story, but one that I think will afford many new insights to us. 1 Kings 3, 1 to 15, this is God's holy word. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, Because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I'm but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? And it pleased the Lord. That Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast For all his servants. Let's ask God's blessing upon the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. Heavenly Father, you have given us the word you've desired us to have. You've given it to us in wisdom, and so we ask for wise and understanding minds to discern your will for us in your word, what it speaks to us, how it would lead us. And guide us, and we ask for ears to hear. We ask for openness in our hearts and the movement of your Spirit upon them, that we might more be conformed to the mind of Christ, the heart of Christ, to walk in the way of Christ. Praying all these things in his name. Amen.
Now this text we've read, this is surely a well-known story from the life of Solomon. Um, it's going to make its way into all the kids' Bible storybooks. We heard it in Sunday school. But here's the problem. I fear that many of us have kind of gotten the wrong version of this story. And the problem is that this narrative has been what I will call Aladdinized. Okay, you know what I mean? It's been Aladdinized. It's been turned into a sort of genie three wishes story, except God is the genie and God gives this guy his opportunity for one wish. And parents might ask their kids, they say, if God asked you to grant you one wish, what would you pick? Would you pick what Solomon picked? This text has been Aladdinized, and so that makes it seem sort of fantastical and out of the ordinary, and we shouldn't expect God to do that for us, so what is the abiding relevance? But as I want us to see, this is not what actually happened to Solomon. And this text has significant ramifications for our lives today and is incredibly applicable for you and I. So let's find out together. Take a look at verse 1. The, the scene this is coming from is chapter 2 was a chapter where Solomon exercised judgment on criminals in the land and the summary statement is that his kingdom was established. Okay? His throne, his kingdom has been established on a foundation of justice. And time is elapsing. This scene is coming four years into the reign of Solomon. And the narrative picks up in verse 1, telling us this. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. So why would the author mention Solomon's marriage right after the establishment of his kingdom? This is not a uh, foreshadowing of Solomon's demise, right? We know that Solomon succumbed to the worshipping of foreign gods from his wives. This does not seem to be the case here. This isn't put in a negative light. And it's actually considered by most commentators that uh, this woman from Egypt is the woman written about in Psalm 45 and the Song of Solomon and is thought to have converted to, to worship the God of Israel. And worship... To people in, uh, marriage to people in Egypt was allowable if they converted to worship and follow the one true God. Okay, so this isn't a negative statement, but it's a picture of the increasing might and power of Solomon's kingdom. Israel is coming to be respected by great nations such as Egypt. They're in alliance with them. They are arising on the international scene. Diplomacy with Israel is a big deal now. It's showing Solomon's political clout. Okay, this is the growth of the kingdom, four years into his reign. Another piece of info in verse 2, take a look. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Okay, so there's a contrast here. However, on a negative, the people are worshipping at high places, which is actually a, it's a long convoluted history, but the basics is that God's law said that sacrifices needed to be offered at the door of the tabernacle. But the problem is the tabernacle was always moving around, so people really didn't give much heed to that, and they started worshipping at a lot of different sites in the nation. And although this worship was improper, often we read that God accepts the worship offered at these high places, and even commends at times the sacrifices done there. Because you see, there was no permanent place for God yet. 
the temple hasn't been constructed. And it's only after the temple's constructed that this worship at the high places starts becoming a greater and greater transgression because the sin becomes more and more clear. But anyways, this, this is still an improper worship and it's a blight on the people of Israel. We come now to the author's view of Solomon. Okay, verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Okay, so even Solomon hasn't been exempted from this error of worshiping God in a place God didn't choose. But this is a beautiful description. Solomon, it says, loved the Lord. And actually, Solomon is the only person that this exact phrase is applied to in the whole Old Testament. Said to have loved the Lord. And how does Solomon show and express his love for the Lord? By walking in his ways. Right? So not only is Solomon one who worships God, but he works for God. He doesn't just love the Lord, but he labors for the Lord. Right? The love in our hearts is expressed by the usefulness of our hands. And Solomon expresses a great act of worship. Look at verse 4. He is going to sacrifice in Gibeon, the great high place. And actually, just note, Gibeon here actually had a tabernacle at it. There was two tabernacles at this time in Israel's history. There was a tabernacle in Jerusalem, which had the ark, and this tabernacle in Gibeon that had the bronze altar. So he is um, trying to worship God at the tabernacle. But look at what he offers. Uh, He used to offer a thousand burnt offerings, a thousand sacrifices. You know, this, a sacrifice at this time, it's not just, you know, carving up your Thanksgiving turkey. This would have been like at least a week-long celebration of continual um, the offering of animals. A thousand animals is a lot. That's a costly sacrifice. And as we even read in the law today, our worship should be sacrificial. And this sacrifice language gets applied to the people of God in the New Testament. We read that we're called to offer a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips that give thanks to his name. Right? We're to worship as a sacrifice. But as Romans 12 says, we're to offer our bodies now as a living sacrifice to God. Our worship is a sacrifice. Our walk and work is a sacrifice. And wouldn't we love it to be said of us like it's said of Solomon here? Um, he loves the Lord. To be said of you that when someone looks at you, they say, you love the Lord. And the one who loves the Lord sacrifices for the Lord. Uh, parents, you know this, that you're, you know your great love is shown for your children by how much you sacrifice for them. And we want to have that sort of love in our hearts for the Lord. Solomon is a lover of God. What a beautiful thing to be said. And after this act of worship, here's what we see happens at Gibeon. Look at verse 5. Let's see Solomon's request. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. God often appeared to his people in dreams. He appears to Solomon in a dream. And he says... Ask what I shall give you. Okay, this is one of the first things we get wrong when we think of this story. God, what he does here is he says, ask what I shall give you. This is a command. He's commanding Solomon to ask him something, which 
And asking the Lord something is what? Kids, what is it when we ask God something? It's prayer. God here is commanding Solomon to pray. He says, ask what you want from me. Ask what I should give you. Notice, there's no promise that God's going to fulfill this. God is not agreeing here that he's going to give Solomon any conceivable thing that he could ask. This isn't a genie scenario. God is simply inviting Solomon to pray. So instead of being a a wish here, this is much more like um, asking someone, what would you like me to get you for Christmas? Tell me. Tell me what you'd like for your birthday. That's what God is asking Solomon to do here. He says, ask what I should give you. This, this request and offer of God is not unique. God asks each of this every day. He wants us to come and bring our requests to him, to bring our petitions before him. So it's not a unique request of the Lord. We'll see it's going to be a unique response. God answers this prayer in a unique way. But this scenario itself is not incredibly unique. It's not a wish order, but a call to prayer. And so notice now in verse 6 that Solomon doesn't deliberate about what should my wish be. He starts to pray. And he starts the way we often start, in praise. Verse 6. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, And given him a son to sit on his throne this day. Solomon begins by praising God for his covenant faithfulness. For the steadfast love that God has shown to his family. And through his family to his people. He reflects on God's work in the past. And look in verse 7 moves to God's actions in the present. He says, now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king. In place of my father David, although I'm but a little child... And I don't know how to go out or come in. Notice really significant here. Solomon considers his identity as God's servant. He says, I am your servant. That's how he identifies himself. And secondly, he acknowledges God's sovereign election in his life. He says, you have made your servant king. He says, I I, I didn't attain this on my own. God, I recognize that in your divine providence, you have made me king. But in humility, Solomon confesses and acknowledges his weakness to the task. He says, I'm but a little child. Solomon was most likely in his 20s at this point. But he's saying, I'm unexperienced. I'm, I'm immature to do this work of the king. He says, I don't know how to go out or come in. And we know in our lives, the amount we pray to God is often proportionate to the amount we recognize our own weakness, our own neediness, our own dependency. We're more prone to pray when we feel weak. Uh, yesterday, there, there was a group of about 10 guys that were helping uh, move Ingrid uh, to a new place. And so when you're moving someone, you know there's lots of heavy furniture and stuff. And uh, really, I got to say, this collection of guys there, it was the cream of the crop. Like if I was going to have a football team, these were the guys in the church that I, would, would be my first picks. And, you know, as, as guys, you know, they're all thinking themselves strong. And so you always, you go in and you judge and you think, I, I think I can move this side table by myself or maybe this chair. And then you, but then you come to one of those big shelving units or a massive couch 
you maybe give it a try, but you quickly realize, I can't do this. And so you, you start lifting, then you hear a guy go, uh, can I get a hand here? And, you know, help comes in. One guy comes, maybe you need two, three, four. And it's not until the guy confesses his weakness that another one um, comes in and jumps in. And it's only when we see that we are weak and unable to move the heavy burdens in our life that we call out to God for help. We want to be people who quickly admit our weakness and need for God's help. Solomon knows how heavy this work is. Look at verse 8. He says, Your servants in the midst of your people whom you've chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. This is a great people. Solomon's task is hard. And notice also that he doesn't call them my people or my kingdom, but he says, these are your people. That is, Solomon's recognizing his role as a steward to serve God's people primarily, not his own. Solomon recognizes the heavy task of the divine mission the Lord has called him to. This is a mission-focused request of Solomon. And so with all this preface Solomon gives, look at verse 9. Here's his actual request. He says, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? Solomon asks for understanding and discernment in his mind and heart. In Chronicles, the other recounting of this passage, he uses the words knowledge and wisdom. So this whole collection of ideas, understanding, discernment, knowledge, wisdom, all put in the, in the way to govern. He wants these qualities so that he can be a good king, to do his job well. He knows that winning the throne was easy, but governing it is going to be harder. And Solomon wants to be a good king and a godly king. He sees the task as hard. Can, can you imagine... The, just the difficulty of governing a nation as a king. In Solomon, coalesce really what we could call all three branches of government. Solomon is the highest lawmaker. Solomon is the highest judge. Solomon is the highest executive. It all stops with him. And he wants to be able to discern what is going to be good versus what's going to be evil. And when you're seeking to lead a people, you're thinking, okay, what are good principles to follow? What are good practices? But then also, what, what will produce good outcomes? What will do this nation good and help them to flourish? And I don't know if you know this, but nations are super complicated. And figuring out what is going to be the best way to help and bless a people is really complicated. And so when you're trying to think what's going to do good or bad, there's hard decisions like, okay, what sort of tax policies will ultimately help or hurt? That's hard to figure out. It's hard to know what biblical principles to apply. What what about um, these military inventions? Will this be good or will this turn out for bad? What about these social programs, these infrastructure projects? All of these things are incredibly complex. And it's difficult at times to find what principles we should follow And it's hard to know what the result is going to be. Nations are complex machines. And Solomon knows he needs wisdom, understanding, discernment in order to do good to to God's people and not ill. So of course he feels 
inadequate. And so he's asking for divine assistance to fulfill his divine calling. And I'm just reminded as we think of just the difficulty of governing, if Solomon was praying for wisdom, if we have leaders that won't pray for themselves for women, we need to be praying for them for wisdom. Right? 1 Timothy 2 calls us to pray for all our governmental leaders. And so let's stand in the place of Solomon and pray that God blesses every leader in society with wisdom, discernment, sound judgment, and knowledge that they might do good to the people they are supposed to serve and not evil. We would love to see good done to God's people. But also recognizing the complexity, let's also give them much grace. Because that the job of governing is incredibly difficult, incredibly complex. And let's remember what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.17, that we need to be those who honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king, and pray for wisdom for all our leaders. This is Solomon's request. And here's how the Lord responds. Take a look at verse 10. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked that. Isn't that amazing that Solomon's prayer pleased the heart of God to bring pleasure to the king of the earth? Wow, that's amazing. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. God is pleased at Solomon's priorities. Solomon's priorities were not his health, his wealth, or his power and success. But his priority was faithfulness and effectiveness in his divine mission, in the task the Lord had called him to. The Lord continues in verse 12. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. God does give Solomon his request, and he grants in an amazing, spiritually empowered way. And we're going to see in the weeks to come just how Solomon's wisdom is displayed in many areas of his life. But God doesn't only give Solomon his request of wisdom to govern. He also gives him honor and riches. And here's another place I think we sometimes get this story wrong. Uh, This is not God rewarding Solomon for having passed the test. Um, this uh, This isn't a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory scenario where Solomon's been given the everlasting gobstopper and he turns back and he he gives it back and it's like, oh, because you've done this, now you get the whole chocolate factory. It's it's not um, Solomon like like Galadriel being like, I've resisted the ring, now I've passed the test and can pass into the Shadowlands. No, God is not um, giving Solomon a reward for having passed some secret test. But as one who was wants to follow God on his divine mission, God is resourcing and equipping Solomon to be able to fulfill it even better, right? We want the wisest people to have access to wealth and resources. We want them to be honored and esteemed in the people because we want them to be able to do their job well. And God is equipping Solomon to complete his divine task well. 
And we remember that the one, as Christ said, who's faithful in little is entrusted with much. And so God entrusts Solomon. And the conclusion in verse 15, we read, And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Okay, so again, this isn't like a movie where he wakes up and, oh no, it was all a dream. But this was a spiritually significant, real dream that Solomon responds to by going and worshiping God. He recognizes the significance. And why is this scene significant for Israel as a people? We know that God wants to bless his people. He wants Israel to be lifted up as his special treasure. And he wants them to be ruled by a godly king. And so as a king like Solomon, one with a heart who loves God and wants to rule wisely, God delights to pour out wisdom on that king. And as the nation walks in God's ways, God delights to bless. And we're seeing here just the heart of Solomon, the sort of heart of leadership that God delights in. And we see how God delights to bless when nations walk in his ways. As the proverb says, when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. And God thus displays his glory by exalting a nation that's walking in his wisdom. And so just some words by way of application as we think of how this relates to us. The New Testament calls us in many places to imitate the faith of the saints, to follow their example of faith, and to avoid their examples of sin. And we can do that with people in our lives, but we're also called, and we're given a whole list in Hebrews 11, we're called to imitate the faith and godliness of saints in the Old Testament. It's not wrong to look to the Old Testament for moral examples. And we can learn from the example of Solomon. If we're told that Solomon's prayer pleased the Lord, we here learn about God-pleasing prayer. And so I want us to look again at just his simple request in verse 9. Okay, take a look at verse 9. And let's see once again how we can follow this example. Solomon says, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? So I want us to notice, Solomon takes his identity as God's servant. And his task is to govern God's people. Okay? I am God's servant, meant to serve and govern God's people. And so in order to complete that link of the servant serving, he knows that in between there, he needs wisdom. Knowledge, discernment, understanding, good judgment. He needs discernment in his heart. He needs wisdom both to choose the best means, also to pursue good ends. Wisdom in it all. And so Solomon is asking for wisdom to govern. He's asking for divine resources for his divine mission. And none of us in this room are kings. If you are, actually, I'd I'd love to meet you and talk about it. But I'm pretty sure none of us are kings, and probably none of us are going to govern um, on, on a national stage. But we are all servants of God, like Solomon, called to govern in the specific areas of responsibility that God's assigned to us. And in the Bible, we see outlined generally four spheres of government. 
and they go in concentric circles. In, in the, at the first level, we are all called to self-government, to govern ourselves for God's glory. We're, there's household government, the government in families. There is church government, such as we see in ecclesiastical assemblies. And lastly, there is state government. These are four spheres of government that the Bible acknowledges. And uh, just as a quick aside, um, economic government, such as in business, is actually considered an appendage to household government um, in most of Scripture. But we have these four spheres of government where we, like Solomon, need wisdom to govern well for the good of the people beneath us. Now, because most of us are not going to be in church or civil government, I want us to focus on just the first two and just take a look at how we call out to God for wisdom in self-government and household government. Okay, let's consider self-government. So, as reasonable creatures made in God's image, we are called to govern ourselves for the glory of God. We are, we are called to govern ourselves in various ways, right? We see the various commands where we're called to govern our bodies, right? To control what our eyes look at, to, to govern what sorts of things our minds think about, to govern uh, the appetites of, of our body, and to not overindulge, to, to be moderate. We're called to govern our lusts, the passions of the flesh that reach out. We often call this self-control, right? And what is self-control but a form of self-government? We're, we're also called to govern our resources, right? This is a big aspect of governing. We need to figure out the wisest way to deploy our financial resources, our time resources, um, the resources of our own giftings and capabilities. We call this stewardship. This is an aspect of self-government that takes wisdom. And if we know our mission is to be like Jesus and to be employed in the work of his kingdom, we see also how our flesh seeks to impede us, how our sin seeks to master us. We need self-government if we are going to rule ourselves for the glory of God and our own good. Our spirit often seems weak and our flesh seems so strong. And so we recognize that we need God's divine resources to help us properly govern ourselves. And this should cause us to really be crying out in prayer for the mind of Christ, for discernment, to seek after Christian maturity. As Hebrews 5.14 says, that the mature are those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Maturity in the Christian life and self-government is a long, hard process that involves continual uh, practice, continual self-examination, continual reflection. How am I stewarding my resources, Lord? Am I using them really the best I can? How am I stewarding my body? Am I caring for it? Am I protecting my mind and my eyes? We need God's wisdom to know how to live a good life. We need help in self-government, but also in household government. Parents are called to govern their children for their good, to govern together in their households. And in this role, you are God's servants, serving for the good of God's children. Even if they're not God's children by way of redemption, at least by way of creation. And 
There's a commandment in Ephesians 6.4. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That is, govern them in the ways of God. And parenting takes tremendous wisdom. There's so many difficult decisions to make. There's need for wisdom on the best ways and times to discipline your children. The best ways to educate your children. How to disciple them to actually see them flourish in the ways of Jesus. You need wisdom as you seek to govern their, their friendships or their media consumption or their extracurricular activities. And especially their little sinful hearts. All this takes incredible insight and wisdom. And there's so many things in the world yelling at you. Um, I was reading some articles that were just talking about how, in a sense, some people often think of parenting as almost like a new religion in the U.S., where people have their strict moral codes that you must do it this way, and if you don't, surely your children will die or blow up or something. And you need to follow these ways, because if you don't, you're hating your kids. And it's, it's, there's so much noise coming at you. And so that's why there's such great need for the clarity of God's wisdom, to follow God's ways, God's principles, and apply them. And so as you see your weakness and neediness in wisely governing your children's hearts, you need to be calling out to God for his divine resources to give you understanding in these ways. You see, we're all God's servants called to serve God's people to govern ourselves, to govern your children, or those over which we might have some level of authority. And we recognize that in so many ways, none of us is sufficient for these things. We see so clearly our lack of understanding, our lack of discernment, the bad decisions we've made in our own lives, the bad decisions made as parents. And we wonder, where is wisdom? Where can I get it? Where can I find it? And we're told where wisdom is in Colossians 2 verse 3. Paul writes that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus is the wisdom of all the Proverbs exemplified and embodied. Jesus is the great prophet who truly teaches the way of God, the way of living in perfect wisdom. In his life, people said no one ever spoke like this man. He speaks as one with authority. And really, Jesus was being ready to become the next Solomon. The people were ready to make him king. And it would have seemed wise to us that he should have taken that. He should have become the new wise king of the people to rule. But Jesus, in his wisdom, in his last days, he offends all the religious elites. And his own people turn against him. And instead of being lifted up as the wise king he is, he's condemned to die the death of a fool. What is crime but foolishness? And to be lifted up naked and exposed on the cross is a picture of the foolish. They're being held up as examples of the foolishness no one wants to commit. How would this propagate God's wisdom in this world? This seems so foolish to us. Why would he have given all that up? We remember what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.18, that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Why? Because in God's eternal and hidden wisdom that's revealed in Christ, through Christ's death and resurrection, he brings the great redemption. 
And he delivers us spiritually from the foolishness that had encapsulated and captured our hearts so that we no longer need to live in foolishness, so that we no longer need to live darkened in our understandings and minds, but can live by the light of God's word illumined by God's Holy Spirit. And although we are so foolish, through faith in Christ, his wisdom is imputed and given to us. And we become the wisdom of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1.30, that Jesus became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Christ is our wisdom, and Christ is reigning right now as our reigning, wise, mighty king. The greater than Solomon. And from his throne of wisdom, he has spoken his wisdom into this world. And as a king, that means in wisdom, Jesus' ways are perfectly suited to the good of his people. They are perfectly adapted to the flourishing of humanity. And so what do we want but to come to him for wisdom? Where is wisdom found? It's found in Christ. Wisdom is found in going to Christ. And Jesus invites us in Matthew eleven twenty. He says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The call to wisdom is nothing less than the call to discipleship. To learn from Christ. To be discipled in the way of Jesus. And part of the call to discipleship is the call to prayer. Jesus invites us to ask him to seek from him, to knock on the door of heaven that God's blessings might pour out upon us. And as we see our lack of wisdom, we are encouraged from James 1.5, where James writes, if any of you lacks wisdom, which I hope we can all see we all do, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith. The task for us this week is to be people that are asking God for his wisdom, for understanding and discernment for the mission he's called us to, to govern ourselves for his glory, to rule our homes for his glory, and whatever influence we have, to do all for good. We lack wisdom, but we know where to find it. We have it in Christ, and we seek it from him in his word by prayer. So let's, in faith, be praying Be diligently asking for wisdom each and every day. Let's pray to him now. Heavenly Father, man in his own wisdom cannot know you. And so we thank you that you do illuminate dark minds. And you have given us hearts to understand you. To know Christ and to see in him the wisdom of God revealed. To see the wisdom of the gospel plan manifested. Lord, we pray that you will grant us wisdom to govern ourselves, to govern in every place you've given us for good. Lord, would you wisely govern your people and arrange all the affairs of our lives to conduce to your glory. Lord, we ask, give us the mind of Christ. Make us a wise people. We pray these things in his name. Amen.